You're listening to a podcast from EMJ. So I'm here with Dr. Wells. Thank you very much for agreeing to speak to the readership of the EMJ. It's very kind of you. My pleasure. So uh, I've just got a, a couple of suggested topics. Uh, and the first one I wanted to talk about really is the, the rule in and rule out culture that we have in emergency medicine, especially with regard to venous thromboembolic disease. But I wonder if you think modern research is moving us away from that in the sense that small peripheral emboli perhaps might not need treatment. Different types of, of distal DVT might not need treatment. Do you think perhaps we need to concentrate more on the burden of disease rather than its yes-no detection? I think that's an excellent question. And what you have to remember is that when our group did this original work on the clinical probability strategy, the idea wasn't just a rule-in, rule-out strategy. The idea was to understand when you're likely to have a false negative or a false positive test. And in that context is, of course, burden of disease. So we've known for years that people have had, can have a VQ scan in which there's a pulmonary embolism, but in our first study that we looked at with that, if you do serial ultrasounds, again, using clinical probability in people with non-high scans, and the serial ultrasounds of the legs are normal, you can rule out a need to treat a PE, but there's a PE there in a significant number of those patients. And as we now know with CT, a lot of those are due to low burden of disease, like like subsegmental pulmonary embolism, even possibly multiple subsegmental pulmonary embolism. And so I think people have lost the appreciation of the fact that we're also able to use the clinical probability tools to understand burden of disease and when we need to treat. Mm. And so distal calf um, clots, it's the, same, it's the same type of concept. So a lot of those are not going to be clinically relevant thromboid. And we have data on serial testing with ultrasound that many of those clots do not extend. So yes, I think it has to be not that we have to shift our, uh, our, um, our, our culture, but we have to understand to incorporate the burden of disease into the culture. Because they're, they're, to me, they're all part of the same thing. So absolutely, there's going to be patients who we are over, we are over-treat when they have subsegmental, even possibly segmental PEs on occasion are over-treated. And there's calf DVTs that are probably going to be over-treated if we, can, if we insist on treating all those people with full-dose anticoagulation. Do you think perhaps a new decision rule might help emergency physicians make that decision at the bedside? Or do you think that we should really just be looking at the tests that we've already done and making more informed decisions? Uh, well, I guess honestly, I haven't thought about whether a new decision rule is needed because the, the current decision rule already incorporates the fact, as I mentioned, that there's going to be a low burden of disease in some patients and they don't get treatment. So the original clinical model was really developed to be done with the strategy of not imaging the caffeines. Yeah. So we already were within that structure of that process, ignoring caffeine thrombi in a lot of patients. So no, I don't really think there's a need to develop something new because it already works on a management basis. The strategies we have work on a management basis, knowing that some people have small thrombi. The problem is that we haven't actually caught up with that fact with the newer generation CT scans. It's already there for distal DVT in my opinion, but it's the the small clots on PE that are underappreciated. And plus our group recently published a paper showing that some pulmonary emboli are going to be if you have isolated pulmonary embolism, it's, um, it has a better prognosis than pulmonary embolism associated with DVT. Mm-hmm. And that's another reflection of a change in understanding the burden of disease. If I could just change to a different question. Yep. Uh, the pregnant patient is still quite an enigma for an emergency physician in terms of suspected venous thromboembolic disease. It's a very emotive diagnosis, you know, one that people are very, very keen not to miss. Yep. So we tend to mm-hmm. over-investigate. Uh, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the use of pretest probability scoring, D-dimer, bilateral ultrasound, things that don't come with perhaps the invasive risk that CT scanning and VQ scanning do when you're looking specifically for pulmonary embolism. 
Well, the original models that, that we worked on were not developed in pregnant patients. And there is a model that has been proposed for pregnant patients for DBT, but it's a small, not widely validated, or not even validated really yet, model. Mm -hmm. But the concept should not be different. It still should be that clinical probability makes a difference and can be used in conjunction with ultrasound and with D-dimer testing. Mm -hmm. I think what we have to catch up with in pregnancy is, a, is something that we're coming to appreciate even more or uh, in other areas is that the D-dimer threshold will change throughout pregnancy and that somehow we have to come to grips with how to incorporate that kind of threshold change within the diagnostic algorithm. It won't be easy but I think that's the, the way we have to move. I noticed that um, Mark Roger and I think yourself have published some papers recently about the use of uh, elevated D-dimer thresholds in the elderly. Do you see us going that way with pregnancy, i.e., you know, a, a factorial rise in the D-dimer, perhaps depending on the gestation? I like do, that? I do. But I, unfortunately, as as you know, with D-dimer assays, it does depend on the assay. So yeah. the difficulty is we have to work on standardizing better between D-dimer assays so that, that that work that stratifies or, or varies the threshold can be applied to different D-dimers, um, not just one D-dimer. I saw, as I'm sure you did, that the Pyopad 3 result was, was relatively disappointing mm -hmm. in terms of the sensitivity of MR venography um, for the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, because of course, a use of MRI for pulmonary embolism is perhaps an answer to the pregnancy problem, uh, some people would suggest. Do you think that Pyopad 3 has, has spelt the end for MR imaging, or do you think people are going to take that forward in, in different ways? Well, it's never the end. So all technologies can be improved upon or looked, on, looked at in a different way. Um, but I really don't see a lot of need for MR in the future in the diagnosis of venous thromboembolic disease for, the, for, for de novo first-time events. Yeah. Where I see MR being most useful potentially is for patients who have recurrent events because of the changes to the clot. Uh, that can be detected with uh, with MR as a clot ages. Okay. So our major dilemma still within the diagnostic world is still how do we diagnose recurrent disease where there's been disease present before. And that's where I see the role of MR not so much in the acute diagnosis. And certainly, in, at least at this point in Canada, we can't afford to do MRs on a very broad population for diagnosis of PE. So that brings us back to burden again, I suppose, doesn't it? And you, you see MR having more of a role with that, do you? Well, burden and chronicity. Do you think that has a, a potential to be better than ultrasound in terms of aging the clot? Well, so far with ultrasound, we haven't done that great a job. We have some sort of loose criteria that help us determine whether we believe a clot is old or not. And we're often fairly good with that once you've got experience with it. But it's still not, it's still not a well-validated process yeah. within, that, within that group of patients with, who have suspected recurrence. Uh, so I see it being a supplementary type of test in that situation. So it's, it's a situation where you're not sure or there's a reasonable element of doubt yeah. and where you have too high a risk to not institute um, or to institute therapy. Yeah. Uh, so, but for, for most mainstream use, I, I personally don't see it. I'm not an expert on technology and whether the MR will become faster and cheaper and better. Yeah. And if that was to happen, then maybe it will assume a, a, a more prominent role. But as it currently exists, I can't see it assuming a strong role. The new anticoagulants are getting a lot of press in the medical literature, of course, <clears> and the, the, the normal media. Do you think that the new oral anticoagulants are spelling the end for vitamin K antagonists? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Um, Good, I, I like a yes-no answer. Yeah, <laughs> I, I see there's a, there, a lot of people are worried about bleeding risk, but if you look carefully at the data within these studies, you'll see that patients weren't dying of fatal bleeds any more frequently in the NOAC group than they were in the BKA groups. Yeah. 
And this was the very first use of these drugs where people had no idea what to do with patients when they bled, and yet there still was not a higher risk of death. So I think the need to reverse drugs is kind of an overrated thing that people have created because they believe being able to reverse vitamin K antagonists is a useful thing. Yeah. But it may not be. It may not. We may not be saving lives by the fact we give people vitamin K and plasma when they've had major bleeds of warfarin. Yeah. And the data from these studies actually suggests that because there's no difference in fatalities and major hemorrhages in these two groups, or in some of the papers, there's actually even fewer fatalities. Hmm. So I, I see it for many people. It will be the uh, it will be the way to go. We'll always have uh, some. It'll be years before we completely abandon abandon vitamin K antagonists. Mm -hmm. You know, unfractionated heparin. Look at that. Why are we still using that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that we do. Lots of people still use it. Yeah. Again, it's a fear of reversing uh, or re reversing low molecular weight heparin, which again I think is an unfounded type of fear because the drug's half life is short enough that that really shouldn't be relevant. So it'll take a while, but these drugs are the real deal. I think um, they're going to change care. And you think that presumably that the, the costs associated will be compensated by the lack of anticoagulant clinics, the lack of follow-up, that kind of thing? Well, when we looked at a, we did our own, we did a study on that in Canada, and we showed it's not an insubstantial cost to manage patients on early coagulants, yeah. uh, vitamin K antagonists, that is, when you factor in the time to go to the lab, cost of doing the lab test, the time you have to take off of work yeah. to drive to the place to get your test done. You have to have a, maybe you have to have a caregiver that brings you there and the caregiver can't be at work. So the societal costs of managing vitamin K antagonists are far greater than what you superficially believe the cost is to use vitamin K antagonists. Lastly, I just wondered, I mean, what do you think is going to be the next big thing in venous thromboembolic disease research? Is there anything you're working on? Is there a new area that's of interest? Well, I think the most interesting area right now is patients with cancer. We do a very bad job with patients who have cancer and venous thromboembolic disease. Very high risk of developing um, VTE uh, if you have cancer, and there's now models such as the one published by Corinna and his group that will stratify risk, but we still haven't determined whether that helps us to actually prevent thrombosis in that patient population, so that's what one thing we want to study. Then yeah. people who develop cancer have a very high risk of recurrence. And, and a model that one of our fellows recently developed, Dr. Lozada, should just be published, will be published in circulation shortly, is able to stratify your risk of recurrence yeah. if you have cancer into a group that's got less than 5% and a group that's got over 20%. Over 20% risk of recurrence, we are not doing a good job of treatment. So that's a population we have to focus on. What can we do to alter the treatment and do better in that patient population that has a very high risk of recurrence? They also have a very high risk of hemorrhage. So I, I think they're a very problematic population in general, both from a risk of developing and a risk of recurring once you develop a clot. That's an exciting area of research. I think we, we can look at new paradigms for treatment within the high-risk patient population. Clearly, low molecular weight heparin is not enough on its own if 20% of those patients recur on low molecular weight heparin. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at new models of care, whether it's mix and maxing different drugs, um, whether it's um, altering doses of drugs, whether it's monitoring responses by using procoagulant markers. To me, that's the most exciting area in venous thromboembolism right now where we have to put a lot of effort. The circulation paper is an e-publication, isn't it? It's just out. I think I had a look at yes, it. Yes, I think it just came out as an e-publication, yeah. And so if that's mostly about derivation work, are you looking to validate those? It has been validated. Actually, that paper, we did validate it within that paper. Right, okay. And we subsequently have validated it in another population. So mm -hmm. we, we took studies that have been previously published, um, such as the one 
two, two, two major studies, a clock study by uh, Agnes Lee and uh, a study out of France by uh, Guy Mayer. We combined their data and we applied the model to that data and showed that it still it worked within those patient populations. And we subsequently, we just submitted this for publication, took another 300 patients from London, Ontario, from Ottawa, retrospectively again, so it's not prospectively been validated, which is a limitation of sorts. But we showed that the model was still working well within that same population, within this new population of patients. So, although it's not following all traditional ways of, 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 of validating a prediction rule, because you should do a prospective validation, yeah. I'm quite convinced that it's going to work um, and that the prospective part, I'm happy to dispense with doing it prospectively myself and I, we're going to start applying it to patients and, and see how, uh, and we're going to measure procoagulant markers within this high risk group and see what happens. Okay, that's fascinating. Uh, Dr. Wells, thank you very much for speaking to the readership of the EMJ. And, uh, You're very welcome. Have a great day. Thank you. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.